As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Chris and Kru Kahui were twins, aged just three months old when they died in hospital, both suffering from traumatic brain injury. Their death was a result of severe impact, either from direct blows or being hit, thrown or slammed against a hard surface. Violent shaking was another possible cause and couldn't be ruled out. What was clear was that the twins' injuries weren't accidental. Their death was the result of somebody using deliberate force against them. It was determined the injuries were most likely inflicted at the same time by the same person. The twins had been murdered. So who was responsible? Christopher Kahui and Kru Kahui were born at the National Women's Hospital, Auckland, New Zealand, on the 20th of March, 2006. The twins were later transferred to Middlemore Hospital. Their mother was Maxina King, 29 years old, and their father was Chris Kahui, 21 years old. They had one other child together already, Shane Kahui, who was 13 months of age at the time. Chris and Maxina's relationship was informal and brief, but it had led to the birth of three children in just over a year. Albeit, the twins' birth was unplanned, unexpected and unwanted. Both Chris and Maxina were raised in abusive households, filled with alcohol-fueled violence. Maxina's mother left after being badly beaten by Maxina's father one night. She went to hospital and never returned to the house. This left Maxina and her siblings to be raised by her violent, abusive father. Maxina ran away from the home to escape the abuse. She was taken in by a foster family and eventually placed back into her mother's care. But her mother abandoned her for a second time, dropping her off at a relative's house one day and never returning. Maxina was both a victim of and a witness to physical violence as she was growing up from the people who were supposed to care for her and protect her. Chris Kahui was raised in a very similar household. The adults in his life were alcoholics, more worried about partying and drinking than providing adequate care for Chris. Chris and his siblings could go days without proper food, but the adults rarely went without booze. Chris also copped his fair share of beatings from his parents as he was growing up, 
It was a rough, tough, abusive and violent upbringing for both of them. The twins, Chris and Kru Kahui, were born eight weeks prematurely. Despite their premature birth, the twins' condition was actually pretty good. Still, they had to be kept in hospital for monitoring to make sure everything was okay before being discharged. They were kept in hospital for around seven weeks until the 7th of May. The nursing notes kept in the first 30 days after the twins' birth showed that the parents, Maxina and Chris, only visited the hospital 11 of those first 30 days. And many of those visits were only brief. When they did visit, hospital staff would encourage them to engage with the twins, doing things such as changing nappies and assisting with feeding. But according to their notes, Maxina and Chris didn't show a lot of interest. Hospital staff were concerned by this and they eventually reported these concerns. On the 4th of May, a social worker visited Maxina at the hospital. Maxina gave her reasons for their lack of visits as being they were moving house and were trying to care for Shane, so they had little time. Plus, they didn't have a family car. She said she knew the twins had the best possible care in the hospital, so she wasn't overly concerned. After this visit, Maxina stayed with the twins for three nights under hospital staff supervision. She demonstrated a good ability to deal with nappy changes and feeding. Staff were actually pretty impressed by what they saw, and they allowed the twins to be discharged from hospital on the 7th of May. The twins were taken home to 22 Courtney Crescent, Mungaray East. Also living there with Maxina and Chris was their other son, Shane, as well as Stuart King, who is Maxina's brother, and his partner, Mona Kahui, who is Chris's sister. They were in a relationship together as well and had a baby daughter who also lived with them. So the four adults and four children all lived together in a three-bedroom house. At least seven follow-up visits were conducted by healthcare staff upon the twins' discharge from hospital. The reports from those visits were all positive. The twins were flourishing and it was obvious they were being well cared for. They were well fed, putting on natural healthy weight and were all around looking very well. Maxina was seen to interact well with the twins, constantly picking them up, cuddling and kissing them, etc. Both parents were open during the visits and were not evasive at all. The initial concerns about their lack of interest at the hospital were erased. There was no reason for concern or for suspicion. On the 18th of May 2006, Chris Kahui's mother was admitted to hospital. She was placed in intensive care suffering pneumonia. Chris Kahui was very concerned about his mother's health and spent considerable time with her in the hospital, often staying overnight. About 1pm on Saturday the 11th of June 2006, Maxina and Chris had a disagreement, resulting in Maxina saying she needed time out. She took their son Shane with her and left the house, leaving Chris to care for the twins. Chris wasn't happy and told Maxina to stay at home. But she left and went to her sister's house where she spent the afternoon. After leaving her sister's house, she went to Chris's father's house, William Kahui who is also known as Banjo. She actually fell asleep there. Chris was angry that Maxina hadn't returned home. Later that night, Chris went out looking for her and found her at his father's house. He told her to get up and get her ass home. He said he was stressed and tired and struggling to make the twins bottles and feed them on his own. 
He said he needed Maxina's help. Maxina refused to return home. She told him to get his ass home so he could look after the twins, who at this time were being cared for by Mona and Stuart. Maxina refused to return home and Chris had little choice but to leave without her. Maxina ended up taking Shane to hospital that night as she was concerned about an illness he had. He was checked out by a doctor and there was no major concerns. They were able to leave a few hours later. Maxina didn't return home to 22 Courtney Crescent until about 10.30am on Sunday the 12th of June. But she wasn't home for long. About midday, Maxina said she was leaving again and going to spend the night with her sister. Chris didn't want her to go, accusing her that she was going there to party and to get drunk. An argument followed and Maxina told Chris to go and get fucked before walking out. This time she didn't take Shane, so Chris was looking after all three kids. The evidence suggests that the twins were healthy and normal when Maxina left the house. Shortly after Maxina left, Chris's father, Banjo Kahui, and Chris's cousin, April Saunders, and her husband, Shane Saunders, visited. April Saunders said that when she arrived, both twins were in their cots. She could hear one of them was awake. She went in to check on them and saw that Crew was the one awake. Crew was making a hungry cry and there was a half-finished bottle next to his cot. Chris mentioned that he had been feeding Crew and he most likely wanted to finish the bottle. April picked Crew up and fed him. She said everything was normal. He took the bottle normally, he looked well, he looked healthy. There were no injuries on him at all. He finished the bottle and went straight back to sleep. Baby Chris remained asleep, having already been fed. April and Shane Saunders left about 2pm, and when they left, there were no problems at all. About 7pm that night, Chris dropped his sister Mona and her baby daughter off at the hospital to visit their mum. He says he was gone for about 20 minutes. Stuart King was at home minding the kids, and he says Chris was gone for about 10 or 15 minutes. About 8.25pm, Mona returned home with her daughter and father, Banjo Kahui. Mona's intentions were to drop off her baby daughter, then return to the hospital to spend the night with her mum. Almost immediately, there was an argument between Banjo and Chris. Banjo had a go at him about Maxina and asked why she wasn't there. Chris told him to shut up, it wasn't his relationship. Mona got involved as well. It turned into a bit of a heated argument that got Chris worked up. About 8.40pm, they all went outside for a smoke. Chris was angry that he couldn't go with Mona back to the hospital to see their mum because he had to stay at home and look after the kids. He was also still agitated over the argument he had just had. After the smoke, Chris walked back inside. He went into the twins' bedroom. He was alone in their room for a period of time. Just how long this period of time is depends on who is telling the story. Mona says it was 10 minutes that Chris was alone in the room. Chris agreed with that at one point, but later changed his story and said it was more like three minutes. But regardless, the evidence is clear he was in the room by himself for at least three minutes, possibly longer. The next part of the story is also unclear, and we will probably never know exactly what happened. 
Again, it depends on whose story you listen to. But even then, Chris has changed his story multiple times already. But what is clear is that at some point, Mona walked into the room with Chris and the twins. She says she picked up Crew to give him a cuddle before she left to go back to the hospital. She said Crew's face was pale, his lips were purple, and his eyes were rolling back in his head. Chris didn't appear too worried. He said he gets like that when he's tired. But Mona realised Crew wasn't breathing. She ran to get her partner, Stuart. Stuart ran into the room and took hold of Crew. He says that Crew's lips were dark purple and they were getting darker and darker. He also says his body was flimsy and limp. He said Crew wasn't breathing for what seemed like five to ten minutes. He was just lifeless. Then suddenly, Crew started to breathe in short bursts, like he was trying to suck in the air. He was making a queasy sound. Every time he opened his eyes, they would roll back and his hands were shaking. Stuart thought Crew was dead at one stage. It was a very serious incident. Again, depending on who is telling the story and what version of the story they are telling, Crew may have been given CPR by Chris, or Chris may have gone to attempt CPR, but Crew started breathing before he had to perform it. Either way, Crew started to breathe again, and in Chris's words, he had come good. Still, given the serious nature of what had occurred, you would think seeking medical attention would be the next step. But it wasn't. They didn't take Crew to hospital, and they didn't call an ambulance. Benjo, Mona and Stuart were all of the opinion Crew should be checked out. But Chris didn't want medical help. He said, nah, he's breathing again. He should be fine now. He refused to take them to hospital and refused an ambulance. Instead, he instructed Banjo and Mona to go out and look for Maxina. He just wanted her home. Banjo and Mona did what Chris asked. They left the house to try and find Maxina, but they couldn't find her. Banjo dropped Mona at the hospital so she could be with her mum, and then he returned to 22 Courtney Crescent. He looked after Shane while Chris slept the night in the twins' room to make sure they kept breathing. So by doing that, Chris did show he had concerns. The next morning, Tuesday the 13th of June 2006, Chris woke up and checked on the twins. He noticed a bruise on baby Chris's face. He left home about 9am. The twins and Shane stayed at home with Stuart. Maxina arrived home about 9.35am. Chris was still out. She spoke to Stuart, who told her about the incident the night before with Crew, but she says he didn't express exactly how serious it was. Maxina went to the twins' room to check on them. Both were asleep and both were breathing. Chris arrived home shortly after. She confronted him and said, what the fuck was happening while I was gone away? How the hell did our boy get that new bruise on his face? What the hell happened? Chris's response to her was that he left the door to the twins' room open and Shane had crawled in the room and somehow got to the twins, causing the bruise. Maxina started yelling at Chris and his response was that Maxina should have been at home taking care of the kids. Now, remember Maxina said to Chris how the hell did our boy get that new bruise on his face? 
That's because there had recently been another bruise on his face. And when she confronted Chris about that first bruise a few days earlier, he gave the exact same story he had just given for the fresh bruise, that he left the door open and Shane crawled in and caused it. Maxina says that she saw two full bottles ready to go, but Chris told her the twins weren't hungry and didn't want their feed. She thought the twins were just asleep, but looking back, she realises they were most likely unconscious. Maxina says she didn't immediately realise how serious their condition was or how badly they had been hurt. The incident with Crew the night before wasn't properly explained to her. She was of the opinion that Crew momentarily stopped breathing, then started breathing straight away. She says there was no mention to her of him turning purple or CPR or not breathing for several minutes, and definitely no mention from anyone that they thought Crew was dead at one point. Maxina suggested taking the twins to their GP, Dr. Nayer, to get checked out. Chris agreed, and they got in the car to head to Dr. Nayer's. But first, they stopped at McDonald's for lunch. Again, keep in mind, Maxina says she didn't realise how serious the situation was at this point, and Chris wasn't exactly forthcoming with information to her. They arrived at the doctor's about 1pm. Chris described the incident the night before where Crew stopped breathing, but he failed to mention that neither twin had been fed or was waking for food since that time. Straight away, Dr. Nayer could see the twins were neurologically unwell. He actually asked Chris and Maxina if the babies had been dropped on their heads. He immediately telephoned in a referral to Middlemore Hospital. He told Chris and Maxina that the twins had to be taken to the hospital straight away. Dr. Nayer says that Chris and Maxina seemed to understand his instruction and the serious nature of the twins' condition. They were very sick and needed to be seen at the hospital immediately. So Chris and Maxina jumped in their car with the twins. But Chris decided he didn't want to go to hospital. He drove straight past the turnoff. For some reason, Maxina asked him to stop at the shops so she could buy nappies and other baby supplies. He stopped and she got what she needed. They returned home sometime before 2pm. When they got home, Chris was amped up, agitated and angry. Maxina was swearing and yelling at him, saying that he needed to go to hospital with her. But Chris didn't want to go to hospital. He decided it was all too much and he left the house to go for a walk. Here is Maxina's account of what happened. Like I said, when we I drove back from the doctors, he didn't want to go to the hospital. I stopped at countdown. We got back to Courtney Crears, and I said, "Wait here in the car with the twins." I went back inside the house. I came back out. He was gone, and I was pissed off. Started running around and getting things, and I rang his sister Tracy, and I said to her, "Tracy, I need I need your help." She goes, "What's the matter?" And I went, "I need you to ring Chris and get us us back in." She goes, "Well, what do you want me to make up do?" What am I going to do? And I went, I just, I lost it anyway. And I went, you can, you know how you're always bossing him around. You can get on the phone and tell him to get his ass back here and help me to get the boys to the hospital. And I started crying on the phone. And she goes, what the, what the fuck's happening? And I went, I don't know, Tracy. We just left the doctors. He said, get to the hospital. And she goes, well, why the hell don't you get to the hospital? And I went, 
Because I wanted to, well, because Chris didn't want to come and because I wanted to grab the other stuff. And she goes, well, you should have just not bothered and just who cares what he wanted. You should have just, oh, just, yeah, pretty hard to make that. The driver, what am I going to do? Turn the wheel for him? He, he drove from the doctors and all of that. And she, she was like, oh, f and I went, please, man, if you could ever help me, this is how you can help me. Now ring your brother and make sure you get it done. I'm not f gonna go through all of this on my own. He helped me, now you help me. These are our kids and you're part of it, so you f do something. So I hung up on her and she did. She did try and get a hold of Chris, but heard that she actually drove over and went to go and find him. She arrived at the house, um, talked to Stuart, and he said, Yeah, now nah, Chris just pissed off. Matt said that she had to go to the doctor. To the hospital because her and Chris went to the doctors but then Chris took off and left the baby so Stuart explained it to Tracy and Tracy went off and looked for, for Chris. Maxina did take the twins up at the hospital without Chris, arriving there about 2.37pm. When triaged, the bruise on baby Chris's face was noticed and Maxina could only give the story that she had been told, that their other son Shane had caused it. The twins were given Category 3 status. The most serious is Category 1. So despite having a phone referral from a doctor saying the twins were suffering neurological damage, the hospital still only gave Category 3 status, which is usually around a 30-minute wait. The twins were eventually seen by another nurse who noted fresh bruising on both twins' faces. It was also discovered that baby Chris had a broken leg and both twins had fractured ribs and they were both suffering traumatic brain injuries. Chris and crew eventually started fitting and convulsing. About 3.40pm, Maxina called her brother Stuart's phone. By now, Chris had returned home from his walk, and he and Stuart were playing a game on the Sony PlayStation. Maxina asked to speak to Chris. Chris took the phone and said, whatever, and hung up. In relation to this call, Stuart said, well, it was his turn on the game, so he played again. Chris was more interested in the Sony PlayStation than what was happening up at the hospital with his twins. Maxina made numerous more telephone calls to Stuart, her sister, and to Chris's sister to try and get someone to get through his head how serious the situation was and to get him up to the hospital but Chris was going nowhere near the hospital. By now, hospital staff had started making accusations at Maxina. It was apparent the injuries to the twins had been done by somebody. They accused her of child abuse. Maxina started freaking out. She freely admits her behaviour at the hospital wasn't ideal, but she said she was panicked and didn't know what to do. She had no idea what was going on. Chris had said Shane got into the room and caused a bruise on the twins' face. Now she was being told about fractured ribs, a broken leg, brain damage and being accused of child abuse. Meanwhile, Chris was still playing the PlayStation. The twins were transferred to Starship Hospital by ambulance shortly after 6pm. Chris finally made an appearance at the hospital about 10pm. It was at this time Maxina says she first heard about crew not breathing for minutes, his lips turning blue and CPR. Banjo said he performed CPR. Chris said he performed CPR. 
Stewart said he didn't see anyone perform CPR. Banjo later admitted lying to protect Chris in case something went wrong and that he didn't perform CPR at all. Their stories were a mess. The injuries to the twins were so bad that nothing could be done to save them. Little Crew died at 4.55am on the 18th of June and Little Chris died at 6.45pm later that same day. Chris was shown to have older injuries as well. Fractured ribs that were in the process of healing. As well as these older fractures, he had fresh fractures of the ribs. He also had a broken leg. His cause of death was traumatic brain injury. Crew also had older rib fractures that were in the process of healing. His cause of death, traumatic brain injury. Experts were of the view that the twins' brain injuries had been caused by severe impact, rapid acceleration and deacceleration of the head, either from direct blows or being hit or thrown or slammed against a hard surface. It's also possible violent shaking was the cause of death. That couldn't be ruled out. The prosecution experts were of the view that the injuries must have occurred after their last normal feed. There is no way the twins would have been able to feed normally after receiving these injuries. So that's where the evidence of April Saunders is important. She fed Crew shortly after lunchtime on the afternoon of the 12th of June. Crew took his bottle normally and went back to sleep, showing the injuries could not have been there at that time. They had to have occurred after April Saunders and her husband left 22 Courtney Crescent, which was about 2pm that afternoon. The effects of the twins' injuries would have been immediate and obvious, with either an alteration to their level of consciousness or a complete loss of consciousness. And they would have continued to remain abnormal from that point on. Their injuries were devastating and extensive. A police investigation was already underway before the twins had died. They interviewed everyone who had anything to do with the twins. Many people were interviewed more than once, giving multiple statements. Chris Kahui was one of those. He was interviewed by police on three separate occasions. It was important to learn exactly when the twins last fed normally to try and narrow down the time their injuries occurred. Chris Kahui was interviewed on the 13th of June before the twins had passed away, again on the 21st of June, three days after their death, and then again on the 3rd of October. In his three police interviews, Chris gave similar versions, saying pretty much the same thing. He says he definitely fed the twins after April fed crew, and therefore after Maxina had already left the house. In his first interview, he said he fed the twins again around 5 or 6 o'clock that night, and then again around 11 o'clock. He even said that they fed again the next morning around 6am. He gave a similar account in his next two interviews. So in the three interviews, one conducted before and two conducted soon after the twins' death, Chris said he had last fed the twins. The police investigation was exhaustive and lasted four months. They concluded only one person could have been responsible for the twins' death. 
Their father, Chris Kahui, was charged with their murder in late October. Chris was released on bail whilst awaiting trial. He was given strict conditions not to consume alcohol and not to be around children under 12 years of age. As it turns out, those conditions were too strict. He was arrested for breaching the conditions and was to be kept in jail until his trial. That is until... The father of the Kahui twins is one of the first people to take advantage of amendments to the Bail Act, which came into force yesterday. Kahui was sent to jail six weeks ago for breaching his bail conditions by drinking beer and being in the presence of children under 12. But the new laws mean that those sorts of breaches will no longer mean a person is automatically taken into custody. Claire Robbie reports. Family members arrived at court to show their support for Chris Kahui. The 22-year-old spent the last 42 days in solitary confinement. He's been in, incarcerated 23 hours a day, and that's a long time for anybody. But new bail laws introduced yesterday mean he won't be there for much longer. Under the Bail Amendment Act, there now has to be not just a risk, but a real and substantial risk of the offender absconding, interfering with witnesses or re-offending. It's aimed at getting prison numbers down. Kahui's risk was deemed moderate. You've got to look at the fact that he has no previous offending um, and certainly nothing of a violent nature. But bail came with tough conditions. Again, he's not to drink alcohol or be in the presence of children under 12 without an adult. Got another chance and just wait up and just stay out of trouble till next year. Next year, he'll be back in court to face charges of killing his twin three-month-old sons, Chris and crew. So he breached the conditions of staying away from children under 12 and drinking alcohol, but he was released with the same bail conditions, as well as a number of other conditions. He was free until his trial. During the police investigation, and even after Chris had been charged, a trial by media had already started, singling out mainly one person, the twins' mother, Maxina. She wore the brunt of the media and in turn the public's fury and outrage. She was turned into a monster, quickly becoming New Zealand's most hated woman. Now, she wasn't an innocent angel by any stretch, but the fact she was the one targeted was interesting. After all, she wasn't the one that had been charged. Chris's trial commenced on the 14th of April, 2008, and ran for about six weeks. Chris's defence team had one main strategy in mind. Well, the lawyer for the man accused of murdering his twin sons is blaming the fatal injuries on the baby's mother. 23-year-old Chris Kahui is on trial at the High Court in Auckland over the deaths of the three-month-old twins who died from severe brain damage in June of 2006. Yesterday, both the Crown and Defence opened their cases. Joy Reid was there and she uh, joins us now. Um, firstly, uh, what are the Defence saying in this, this case, uh, Joy? Well, they only had a chance to make a very brief opening statement, and, and in that, Mr Kahui's lawyer, Lorraine Smith, told the court that her client didn't kill the twins. Now, she says there's no direct evidence or any one witness proving uh, that Chris Kahui is the killer, and she's blaming the deaths on Mr Kahui's ex-girlfriend, who's Maxina King, who has been described in court as outspoken and verbally abusive. The defence cases, and let me put it bluntly, 
that most probably the mother, Maxina King, inflicted the injuries. And you will hear that Maxina King told a witness months after Chris Kahui was charged that she did it and Chris didn't. Now, Lorraine Smith is planning to call that witness to the stand, uh, but also some internationally respected uh, med medical experts, one a pathologist and another a paediatrician, who she says will tell the court that it's impossible to tell with any accuracy when the twins were injured, and that would indicate that the injuries could have been inflicted when Maxina King was in fact at home, which Miss Smith says effectively contradicts the main medical evidence of the Crown. So is the Crown case, as outlined yesterday, uh, pretty reliant on the issue of timing in terms of, of establishing uh, Chris Kahui's guilt? Yes, very, very much so. In its opening yesterday, Crown lawyer Simon Morse made it very, very clear that Chris Kahui is the only person who can be at fault for his baby son's death, and that is due to timing. Now, they say that the twins' mother, Maxina King, was not at home when the babies could have been fatally hurt, and that Chris Kahui was the only one who had the chance to harm them uh, because he was alone with the twins for about three to ten minutes. Uh, and immediately after that, Chris's sister, uh, Mona Kahui, noticed that baby crew had uh, in fact stopped breathing. And as she stooped to pick this baby up, she noticed that his lips had gone purple. His eyes were rolling back and he seemed to have stopped breathing. This is the first time that there is any evidence that the twins, either of the twins, had been injured and immediately prior to it, used is in the room with them alone. Now, the family never called an ambulance, and after the babies fell asleep, they never woke up. Now, in one of Chris Kahui's interviews with police, he tried to say that his one-year-old son had in fact injured the babies, uh, but the Crown also refutes that argument. There's no way that the injuries to either twin, let alone both, could have been caused by accident. It's simply impossible. So whoever did it, did it deliberately. Now, the court heard that the babies suffered from massive brain injuries, that they'd been grasped so tightly around their chest that their ribs had popped and that they'd been slammed against a hard surface. Their tiny bodies also bore evidence of other abuse, uh, but the jury was told that no medical treat, uh, treatment could have saved the babies from dying. That clip and all future clips that will be played on this episode are courtesy of New Zealand Radio. Links will be provided in the show notes so you can check out all their clips and articles that cover the case. Now, the part you just heard about Maxina allegedly confessing to a defence witness will be covered shortly. To call that alleged confession unreliable is probably being too kind. Maxina was one of the first prosecution witnesses to give evidence. The mother of the Kahui twins has told the court how she argued with her partner after coming home to find her babies critically injured. Maxina King was giving evidence at the trial of the baby's father, Chris Kahui, who was charged with their murder. The Crown alleges that Mr Kahui fatally injured the twins when he was alone with them in the baby's nursery back in June 2006. Our reporter Joy Reid has been at the High Court in Auckland. She's with us now. Joy, what else did Miss King have to say? Well, she described the last time that she saw the babies before they were injured. She said that when she left them, they were good, they were awake, looked normal, their eyes were following sound, and they were in good condition, but she never saw them that way again. Now, she left the house for the night. The Crown says the fatal injuries were inflicted, and when she came back the next morning, she was told that her son, Crew, had stopped breathing during the night, and she rushed into the nursery yelling at Chris and said this to the court. 
I asked them what was happening while I was gone and away. How the hell did our baby, our boy, get that new bruise on his face and what the hell happened? And what did he say? About the bruise, Chris told me that it was our son Shane that did that. I asked him how the how how did he do that? And then and then he told me he left the door to the nursery open that Shane had crawled in crawled in, got into the room, climbed up on the couch and had run along onto the couch. Then she said that Chris Kahui blamed her for the baby stopping breathing and said that she should have been there taking care of the kids and otherwise this wouldn't have happened. Now, as you've heard, the prosecution's position was that the twins didn't have their injuries when Maxina left the house that day. They couldn't have, because April fed crew after Maxina had left, and there is no way crew would be able to feed with the injuries he later sustained. Chris himself said that he had fed them after April had left as well. So the defence tried to exploit the brief window of time when Chris was dropping Mona at the hospital, around 7pm that night. Remember he said he was gone for 20 minutes. Stuart King said it was more like 10 to 15 minutes. Police actually later did a test drive of the journey and including a stop for petrol, they were there and back in 17 minutes. So it's in this window of time the defence argued that Maxina could have returned home and inflicted the injuries on the twins. Maxina and the prosecution of course rejected these claims. Maxina saying she wasn't even in Mungaree at all that night. But a point of contention, which should never have been a point of contention, was cell phone records obtained from Maxina's sister, Emily, who Maxina said she was with the entire night. A seed of doubt was planted by Emily's cell phone records. Maxina said she didn't return to Courtney Crescent that night. In fact, she said she didn't return to Mungaree at all that night. But Emily's cell phone records show she received a call at 7.54pm and the call went through the Mungaree cell phone tower. So at first glance, the cell phone records indicate Maxina might have been in Mungaree that night after all and she might have been lying. What actually happened was that Maxina and Emily were driving along the southwestern motorway past Mungaree and that's when Emily got the call. That's why the call pinged off the Mungaree cell phone tower. And there was evidence to back this up. What the court heard was that had the call been received by Emily while her and Maxina were at 22 Courtney Crescent in Mungaree, which is what the defence was saying, then the call wouldn't have even pinged off the Mungaree tower. It would have pinged off another tower altogether. It's a little confusing, I can see how at first glance people would think, no, she's lying. The cell phone records show that she was in Mungaree. But actually they weren't. They were driving past on the motorway and the cell phone records back up their story. I can see how people get slipped up by that. It's logical to assume that if they were at 22 Courtney Crescent, Mungaree, then a cell phone call would ping off the Mungaree tower. But it's just one of those things. It doesn't. Not to mention, this particular call was received at 7.54pm. Chris left for the hospital at 7pm, 
and he said he was gone for 20 minutes. So by his own evidence, he was already back at home by 7.54pm. And at 6.58pm, which is around the time Chris left, cell phone records place Emily and Maxina in a town 25 kilometres away, which is around 15 miles. So there's no way they could have got there in time while Chris was out. So this theory, using the cell phone records to support it, is a stretch. Chris's defence team went after Maxina hard. And as I've said, she certainly wasn't an angel. She did have a criminal history for fraud and stealing. And she had three children to two previous partners that were no longer in her care. Shane had since been removed from her and Chris's care as well, given what happened to the twins. The previous injuries found on the twins were obviously used against her. People were asking, how could a loving mother not notice these previous injuries? Maxina was painted as promiscuous, a violent bully, and as someone who didn't care about her children. There were even question marks raised if Chris was the father of the twins, again making out she was out sleeping around. But a paternity test ended that debate. Chris was definitely the father. It then came out that after the twins' funeral, Maxina got blind drunk, made a fool of herself, and it was alleged she started hitting on a female guest at the funeral and ended up kissing Chris's teenage brother. The hospital staff testified too, painting a bad picture of her behaviour at the hospital when she was there with the twins, which she freely admits probably didn't look great. The media lapped it up. Maxina was the main target. She was being crucified. Chris seemed to escape much of the media crucifixion. They painted a picture of Maxina as always being out partying, never around for her children, and being a drug user. She did admit to trying drugs, but says it definitely wasn't a regular thing. Chris himself said he didn't know Maxina to be a drug user. And Chris's own sister, Mona, testified that Maxina never really went out much at all. Then headlines started surfacing saying Maxina had secretly admitted to an ex-boyfriend that she killed the twins and Chris had nothing to do with it. This is the confession to the defence witness that you heard mentioned earlier. Apparently he had even tape recorded the admission. Only problem, when it came time to produce the tape recording, it didn't exist. And her ex-boyfriend actually later testified he couldn't remember exactly what Maxina had said and he could have been mistaken. He also admitted that he wasn't very good at telling the truth. So he had zero credibility. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. But it was just another piece used against Maxina in the defense's mission to make her out to be the killer. People read the headline and the article and think it must be true. Never mind that when you look into it, it becomes apparent it was about as far from the truth as you could get. The mother of the dead Kahui twins will face a further grilling in the witness stand today as def the defence tries to paint her as the baby's killer. Maxina King's giving evidence at the trial of the twins' father, Chris Kahui, who's accused of murdering the three-month-old babies in June of 2006. Maxina King will spend a third day in the witness box today. Reporter Joy Reid is covering the trial. The defence was unrelenting in its questioning of Maxina King, accusing her of being the twins' killer. Put it to you that you returned home and you lost it. That's not true. I put it to you that you did something terrible to the twins. I have never, ever, absolutely not harmed my sons. Defence lawyer Lorraine Smith said Maxina King had told her sisters that a woman with evil spirits had hurt the babies, hinting at herself, but Miss King says that was absolutely untrue. She also denies the allegations that she had two opportunities to injure the babies, either on the morning before they were admitted to hospital or while Chris was out the day she says she wasn't at home. She also denies confessing to another boyfriend that she was the killer. You said to him, oh, I don't know why I'd done what I did, didn't you? It's absolutely not true. He said to you, done what, man? What are you on about, didn't he? No. You said, oh, never mind, f And you also said Chris didn't do it, didn't you? That's absolutely not true. Maxina King also denied trying to cover up historical bruises with makeup and heavy handling her other son, who was just three months old at the time. She also rejected claims that she tried to make the twins look cared for by washing the unconscious babies before taking them to hospital and that she threatened her brother with a bullet if he told police what happened. The defence also tried to paint Miss King as a careless mother. You've had six children altogether, haven't you? Yes. Two are deceased. Shane has been taken away from you by Sips, hasn't he? Shane's been removed from me, yes. The older three are from two previous relationships, aren't they? Yes, they are. And you abandoned those three older children uh, with their fathers, didn't you? I left them in the best possible care that was best for them at the time. Especially when she admitted to using the drug pee the week before taking the babies to hospital. You looked after the twins while you were still under the influence of methamphetamine, didn't you? Yep. Maxina King no longer has any contact with any of her four remaining children. She told the court Chris Kahui was a loving father who was always worried about handling the twins because they were so tiny. Her cross-examination continues today. In Auckland for Morning Report, Joy Reid. Many others were called to the stand to testify. Here is Stuart King testifying about the incident where crews stopped breathing. Well, his lips were like a dark purple. They kept on getting darker and darker and darker. And his, his body was so so flimsy and so limp. Wasn't The teller wasn't normal. How long wasn't he breathing for? 
waiting for about 15 minutes. I know he was just lying in my arms, lifeless. And all importantly, the jury got to hear from Chris Kahui. He didn't testify at his trial. He had every right to remain silent and not testify. But his police interviews were played to the court. The jury in the trial of double murder accused Chris Kahui has today been watching police videos in which he describes how bruises started to sprout on his babies. Three-month-old twins Chris and Crew Kahui died of severe head injuries in June 2006. Our reporter Joy Reid has been in the High Court in Auckland and watching the videos today. She's with us now. Joy, what does Chris Kahu say in this? Well, there are about six hours of footage in total, and so far the jury's only watched about three hours of them. But in the accused's first interview with police, which was only hours after the twins were admitted to hospital, he's got his one-year-old son sitting there on his knee, and it's in that interview that Chris Kahui told the police officer uh, that baby crew had stopped breathing during the night and that his lips went blue. There was blue around the lips, and then I... For my ear to his mouth, and he wasn't breathing, so I gave him like a bit of CPR and five breaths and one pump, and he came out, he started breathing again. Now, Chris Kahui said that was pretty freaky in his own words, uh, but that baby crew, as I said, did come right. And it wasn't until about 10 the next the next morning that uh, Chris Kahui noticed any bruises on the boys. Sort and how. Ha- sort of see some breathing on. on um, Crystal's face. And at the time you saw the bruising come up on Chris, what did you think? Started thinking, where did they come from? Like lunchtime, I started thinking, where did did they come from? So by lunchtime, there were more bruises? And later on, as I say, more bruises sprouted up on both those boys' faces. And how did he explain the injuries? Well, in a word, he he couldn't. And he said at one stage, though, that his son Shane, who was this one-year-old toddler, might have gone in there and, and, quote, whacked the twins. But when asked if he actually saw Shane hit the twins, he said that he hadn't. He'd just seen him go into the twins' room, uh, but that Shane had hit the boys before by accident. And when police officer, Detective Julie Ingram, put to him that the injuries were so severe that there's no way Shane could have caused him, he didn't have anything to say to that. And then she said, quote, someone's gone in and beaten your boys, who was that? And Chris Kahui said he didn't know. Now, Detective Ingram asked him if he had got angry and he'd taken it out on the boys, to which he replied, I've never hit a kid before, I've never hit my boys, and I've never hit any child. What did he say then about the twins and how they usually behaved? Well, he said they spent most of the time in the cot unless they were feeding, and that was every six hours or so. But he did say that baby Chris was often unsettled, that he was the one that normally cried a lot more, and he described the crying as grizzling. Now, we know now that baby Chris was actually nursing a broken leg during that time, and that broken leg was up to two weeks old before he was hospitalised with the fatal head injuries. And what was Chris Kahu's demeanour like in these videos? He's very quietly spoken and on the whole seemed relatively calm. At one stage, though, the police officer told him that his babies may not survive and asked him if he was concerned about this. And he said that, yes, yes, he's very scared. Uh, He spent much of the first interview cuddling his one-year-old son, Shane. And the rest of the video footage, which is without his younger son, will be played tomorrow. Thank you, Joy. That's our reporter in Auckland, Joy Reid.
Video evidence has continued today in the Kahui case, with footage showing Chris Kahui denying he had fatally injured his twins in a fit of rage. It's likely to be the only time the jury will hear directly from the accused, who's charged with murdering his twin boys, Chris and Crew, in June 2006. The video interview has today also revealed the accused admitted he wanted to hand himself into police because he felt he had nothing left to live for. Our reporter Joy Reid has been in court watching that footage today. She's with us now. Joy, how else does he explain the twins' injuries in this final video interview? Well, he doesn't really. He repeatedly says that he doesn't know that or how his his boys were hurt. And the detective interviewing him pushed him quite hard on this. And during the interview, he admitted that he was under a lot of pressure from the twins' mother, Maxina King, at the time, that she was upset with him for spending so much time at the hospital with his sick mother instead of with her at home. He admitted that he bottled things up, that he was angry uh, that Maxina King had gone out for the night. And, and then Detective Sergeant Chris Barry suggested to him that all these factors combined caused him to snap. Pressure with the three kids, mum's in the hospital, Banjo's having a go at you, there's no one else to take it out on, and your frustration comes out in a moment where you lose control. Is that what happened? Never laid a hand on now, he repeatedly denied similar accusations today in court uh, on the video, including those that he didn't call an ambulance when baby crew stopped breathing that night, and he didn't go to the hospital when they were first admitted to intensive care. And uh, the policeman put it to him, this was because he had caused the fatal injuries, to which he said it wasn't true. How then does he try to justify his statements about wanting to hand himself in? Well, the court heard that he told his dad and Maxina King's brother, Stuart, uh, that he felt responsible for the twins' deaths because he'd failed to protect his sons and that now that they're dead, he's got nothing left to live for. It was my fault in the way that I couldn't protect my kids and yeah, I was never following the pain or anything. It was just, I thought I just had nothing to live for and, and does he say anything about Maxina King and her alleged involvement in the twins' injuries? Well, the defence claims that the baby's mother, Maxina King, is the most likely one to have killed the inf infants. And in this final interview with the police, Chris Kahui suggests that, yes, she could be the one to have lost control and that she was the one to injure the twins before they went out for the, before she went out for the night with her sister. Uh, but he couldn't go into more details to back that up and couldn't go into, into any more details about why she could be to blame. And the jury had some medical pictures of the twins' other injuries. Yesterday, the court was able to see, for the very first time, the extent of the twins' other injuries today, and uh, it was shown an X-ray of baby Chris, who had a broken leg. And in this X-ray, you could physically see that this bone had been snapped in half, and the the medical expert said that the injury was less than uh, seven to ten days old. Now. Uh, Baby Chris also had a possible wrist, wrist fracture and a head fracture, and baby crew also had a head fracture. Thank you, Joy. That's our reporter in Auckland, Joy Reid. And the defence had their turn calling witnesses. They called in their own expert to refute what the prosecution experts had to say and to drive home their other theory, which was that if Maxina hadn't returned home in that brief window of time Chris was out on the 12th of June, then she must have injured the twins either before she left or the morning that she got home. 
The key medical witness for the defence in the Kahui case has today disputed when the Crown says the baby twins were fatally injured. Dr Terence Donald gave evidence today as the last defence witness in the trial of Chris Kahui, who's accused of murdering his twin baby boys nearly two years ago. The case is now winding up, with the jury expected to go out later this week to consider its verdict. Our reporter, Joy Reid, has been at the High Court in Auckland today. She's with us now. Joy, firstly, what did Dr Donald say about the timing of the twins' injuries? Well, the Crown's case is that the infant's injuries can be narrowed down to just before baby crew stopped breathing, which was immediately after the accused spent time alone in their nursery. But Dr Donald today, he's a child abuse expert from Australia, says that it's, it's too hard really to pinpoint when exactly these twins were injured. Now, he says it is possible that they were hurt when the Crown says they were, but that it's more likely that the babies could have been injured in an earlier assault and that this breathing episode was more likely to be a seizure and a secondary reaction to the injuries. It would also fit just as well with a baby who was developing secondary effects from something that had occurred some time previously. You couldn't argue one over the other. Now, Dr Donald says that a person who was not their main carer, including the father, if the father wasn't the main caregiver, may not have been aware of anything wrong with them when they had these serious injuries. So when does he think the babies were injured? Well, Dr Donald made it pretty clear to the court today that it's hard to say and, and says that if the breathing, breathing episode was a secondary reaction, uh, then it could have occurred up to six hours after the primary assault, which is the primary injury. Now, said that the only way really to accurately time uh, when the babies were injured is to find out from an independent person when the twins were last interacting normally, as this would uh, mean that the injuries would have happened after this. But he says in this case there's effectively no independent person and the only real description that you get about about how the twins reacted um, earlier earlier before the Crown says these injuries occurred is, is from the twins' mother and he said that a carer is not usually classified as an independent. Do you think it's possible to say when on Monday the 12th of June 2006, the babies were injured? It depends on how reliable their mother's account is. If their mother's reliable's account had happened after that, if their mother's account isn't reliable, then it could have happened before that. What else did he say about the twins' injuries? Well, he said today that their injuries were very serious and almost identical. Uh, he also said that he believed that they would have been able to, to do basic feeding, uh, but not vigorously suck. Uh, but that differs from the Crown medical experts who say that the babies would not have been able to feed much at all after sustaining such serious head injuries. Now, he also said that he was very surprised that no one realised how seriously ill uh, these babies were until they were taken to the doctor. And he said these babies would have been in and out of consciousness for many hours they would have been unable to wake and making abnormal noises. And what criticism did he have about the autopsy? Well, he says that a number of steps were missed out in this autopsy, and such as examining the baby's eyes, and that made it more difficult to try and determine how these twins were hurt. Now, he's written a protocol for autopsies in Australia and said that this post-mortem would not have met those standards. And we are nearing the end of this. Yes, we are. Dr Donald was the last defence witness to be called. So from tomorrow, the Crown will make its closing submissions, and that's expected to take most of the day. Then uh, the defence closing submissions will be on Wednesday, and the judge will probably sum up and send the jury out on Thursday to consider its verdict. Thank you, Joy. That's our reporter in Auckland, Joy Reid. After all the evidence had been laid out in court, it was time for the jury to decide the fate of Chris Kahui. 
But they didn't need long. In fact, they reached a verdict in record time. Incredibly, they came to their decision in just minutes. Some say it was only one minute, but others say it was a few minutes more than that. But the court had already adjourned for lunch, so it was over an hour before the actual verdict was read. Do you find the accused Christopher Sonny Kahui guilty or not guilty on count one of the murder of Crew or Mecca Kahui? We find the accused not guilty. Do you find the accused Christopher Sonny Kahui guilty or not guilty on count two of the murder of Christopher Areka Kahui? We have found the accused not guilty. <laughs> The date of acquittal was the 22nd of May, 2008. Here is what Kahui's lawyer, Michelle Wilkinson-Smith, had to say. These interviews are courtesy of New Zealand Radio. She starts by talking about how quickly the jury reached their verdict. Well, it was a very long trial, and during the trial, they've obviously had time to discuss some of the issues that arise. Um, so presumably, there are a lot of things that already discussed. And your response when they delivered that verdict? Uh, hugely relieved. And what about your client? I think he felt much the same. What's he doing now? He went home with his family. What did he say to you? He said very, very little. He could barely speak, actually. The verdict, how do you think they reached that? Oh, I've got no idea. Um, we, we thought that there was reasonable doubt in every possible area, and presumably the jury agreed. Crucially, it was the timing of the injuries. Yes, and whether it could be excluded, um, basically whether Chris Kahu was the only person who could possibly have inflicted the injuries. Now, of course, that raises the question of who did inflict the injuries. Yeah, and I can't really... I mean, that's advanced inside the courtroom quite properly, but I can't talk about that outside the courtroom. But it was a crucial part of your case. You pointed the finger at the mother. Yeah, I think... I mean, the way the case was run was simply a response to the evidence that we had. Um, but it's certainly not... I can't, outside the courtroom, for reasons I'm sure you're aware of, um, really talk about who, who might actually have done it. So in that way, there's no resolution here? Well, I mean, all the, the only thing that the criminal justice system can do is work with evidence. And unfortunately, in some cases, there is no absolute you know, proof as to who has done something like this. And that's very, very sad. But that's just the reality, because in the end, you can only convict someone if there's proof beyond reasonable doubt. And if there isn't, there's no justice in sending someone to prison for something they didn't do. The criticism of the police prosecution in this, are you suggesting that Chris Kahui should never have been charged? I think the criticism that was levelled during the case was appropriate for the jury to hear about, because it was a circumstantial case, and it's a question of how confident that the jury could be that they were, were fully appraised of all of the circumstances. However, the police always do their best within the, I think, within the evidence that they have, and they present their case as they see it, and then the Crown presents the case as the Crown sees it. And the system is supposed to have safeguards in it, so the Crown reviews the police case and there's a safeguard there. But, of course, you know, nobody is perfect and people do make mistakes. That's the whole reason we have a justice system that also has defence counsel who then put 
the other side, who have the ability to look at the evidence, who can say, look, hang on, that doesn't quite work. And then we have the jury, who in the end are the ultimate safeguard. And I think this case really illustrates how well the system can work, you know, despite the fact it takes a long time and um, of all the criticism of the way criminal trials are run, you know, you're not going to get any more impartial people in the end than 12 ordinary people who do not watch cases all the time. Or it could be a criticism of the way the police run investigations. Well, do you expect the police always to get it right? I mean, if you say the police must always get it right and there should never be a not guilty, then basically what you're saying is we don't need a criminal justice system. The police can just arrest someone and put them in prison. Our whole system assumes that the police will not always get it right. Of course they won't. And again, unfortunately, in this case, the tragedy of these boys being killed, we don't know the answer. No, we don't. Um, and it is an absolute tragedy. And, you know, I mean, I've got three small kids. I found it quite difficult, some of the events in this case. And I think lots of people have. It's very, very sad. And, and you know, the verdict is great. We're very relieved at the verdict. But it never um, takes away from the fact that there are, um, you know, there's two babies who've died. And again, I have to point out the defence called the police investigation a disaster, which is not merely making a mistake. There were aspects of the police investigation that certainly the defence thought should have been done better. Well, and disaster that, was the word that was used in court. Yeah, it wasn't. I didn't use that word. There were, I mean, that's probably an issue for another forum. You know, we're the defence counsel. We're looking at it from our point of view and how objective we are about whether it was a disaster or not. It's not really for us to look at in the end. We put that before the jury. We don't know how much the jury took from that. But as you say, it's taken a toll on you, this case. Oh, it's a long case. I think it's, I think everyone involved in it, including the jury. It's very, I mean, it's just sad. You know, you've got photos of poor little babies. It's very, very sad. There's no two ways about it. It's sad for Chris Kahui. Um, it's sad for the whole family. And, you know, whoever did this, there's never really been a suggestion that this was a cold-blooded murder. Whoever did this absolutely snapped because they weren't coping. And, you know... Public calling up for vengeance is fine, and I understand it, but you've got to look at the systems that are in place and how much assistance there is. And for people out there with little babies, you know, they don't die of crying. Just put them down and walk away. What would you say about the effect that this has had on, on Chris Kahui? It's really hard to tell. He's grown up a lot in the course of the trial. You know, he was 21 when it started. He's 23 now, and they're quite important years. Um, I think he's handled it with surprising dignity. He's been a very easy client to deal with and I hope that he can move on from this and rebuild his life and I hope that the fact that he's recognisable everywhere isn't going to hold him back too much. That's Michelle Wilkinson-Smith, the lawyer for Chris Kahui, who's been acquitted of murdering his two baby sons. Here's what Detective Inspector John Timms had to say after the verdict. I think it's important and I think the message needs to be made clear that Everyone that was at Courtney Crescent over that weekend was considered a person of interest. And we thoroughly investigated each person until we identified Chris Kahui and then made the arrest. There are no leads that we could follow up. As I've said, there is no evidence to support a charge against any other person, and that includes the mother, Maxina King. I think we should all remember that the last two years has been about Chris and crew Kahui, the twins, and nobody else. And that has not changed with the result today. 
This has been a tough investigation, a tough trial. It's been a tough two years. But what I would say is that uh, with any child death, those involved, whether they are witnesses or offenders, are normally related to the dead child. With this comes the problem that the family have loyalties to each other, not always to the dead child. So that was it. From the police perspective, all the evidence pointed to Chris Kahui, nobody else. But the jury acquitted him in record time. There was nothing more they could do. There was a newspaper article released shortly after the trial, which was pretty concerning. Actually, I'd say it's disturbing. The article outlined that the trial was put at risk when a juror on the case was at the pub with his friends and told them several members of the jury had already said they didn't think Chris had killed his twins. This was said after the first days of what was a six-week trial. So much for carefully considering all the evidence before coming to a decision. Word eventually got back to the prosecutors and judge about this. But all that came of it was the judge warning the jury they had to consider all the evidence before reaching a verdict. Some law experts commented that it could have been grounds for a mistrial. After being acquitted of murder, Chris became the father of a baby girl to a different partner. Initially, he was forced to live separate from his new partner and daughter, but he was allowed to move in two years later in 2010. However, even then he wasn't allowed to be alone with his daughter. As of 2012, he still had to be supervised at all times with her. Child services were closely monitoring. On the 4th of October 2010, a coronial inquest into the twins' death commenced, held before coroner Gary Evans. Chris had the right to silence at his criminal trial, but not so at the coronial inquest. And by now, Chris's stories had changed. His version of what happened when Chris stopped breathing was one of the parts of his story that was now different. At the inquest, it changed a couple of times, actually. He first said he gave Crew CPR and he came right. He later said he went to perform CPR, but he didn't have to because he came right and started breathing before he did anything. But later still in the inquest, he went back to his original CPR story again. He testified that he was freaking out, really afraid and thought Crew was dying. But instead of calling an ambulance and getting medical help, he outlined how he sent his sister and his dad to find Maxina. He was asked by the coroner that if he had a puppy and it stopped breathing, would he call a vet? Chris said yes, he would. When the coroner then asked, why didn't you call an ambulance or take crew to the hospital when he stopped breathing? Chris couldn't offer an explanation. Chris also testified that he now realised how important it was to establish when the twins were last fed and appeared healthy. He said, looking back, the twins didn't feed when they usually would have after Maxina left. He said he doesn't think baby Chris cried or fed at all after Maxina left. But he couldn't say the same about Crew, as there was April's testimony she fed him. But it was clear what he was trying to do, 
make it seem like Maxina could have injured them before she left. He now realised how important the timings were all right, and he was changing the story. But the three statements he gave to police were done one before and two soon after the twins' death, which was now four years ago. In these statements, he said that he had fed them numerous times after Maxina had left. When asked the reason for his change in his story, Chris's defence claimed he hadn't told the truth to the police because he was a simple boy and he didn't want the police to think he was a bad father by not having fed the twins that night at all. The coroner wasn't buying it. And Chris himself conceded in cross-examination what he said in his police interviews four years earlier would have been his best recollection of what had occurred. Not now. The coroner asked Chris about his time alone in the room with the twins, just prior to when Cruz stopped breathing. The coroner asked him, what was he doing in there? Chris replied, I think I was picking up stuff off the ground. The coroner said, it wouldn't take three minutes to pick up stuff, would it? Chris said, no. The coroner said, so what else were you doing? Chris said, I can't remember what I was doing in there. The coroner found that Chris's behaviour was consistent with trying to avoid medical authorities, as he knew the twins were in a bad way. He was scathing. He said, The behaviour of Chris Kahui in turning his back on the pressing needs of his sons for medical attention straight away is incompatible with that of a normal father whose only concerns are his children's welfare. This bugged telephone call recorded by police between Chris and his father, Banjo, doesn't paint a great picture. Chris is recorded as saying, See, fuck, if we never went into the hospital that time we went to the doctors, fucking they probably never would have found out. Banjo said, who? Chris said, the police, when they ain't even, you know, if we never had checked up on anything and then we still probably you know, if the boys, you know. The coroner also asked Chris about the period of time when Maxina first presented the twins to the hospital, when she tried repeatedly to call him and get him up there, but he was too busy with the PlayStation. The coroner asked, was she worried about the twins' health? Chris said, yes, she was. Coroner, and she wanted you to come to the hospital to be with her. Chris, yes. Coroner, because you were the father. Chris, yes. Coroner, well, why did you not go? Chris, I did not really want to be walking up to the hospital. Coroner, you did not really want to be walking up to the hospital. Chris, Yes, I would have rather her come to pick me up. Never mind the twins' condition at the time, and Maxina was up there freaking out. Never mind there was another car that was in the driveway that he could have taken. And never mind that the hospital actually wasn't that far away and was well within walking distance. The coroner was satisfied that the injuries suffered by the twins that led to their death were non-accidental in nature. 
the cause of death was the result of the application of force at the hands of another or others, and that more than likely their injuries were inflicted at the same time by the same person. He found that Chris Kahui knew something was wrong when the twins ceased to cry out to be fed, and he knew they were obviously unwell. For reasons of his own, he neglected to summon medical help they urgently needed. He found cell phone records corroborated Maxina King's story of her whereabouts on the night. He found it implausible and in direct contradiction to a lot of other evidence that Maxina could have returned home and injured the twins. In fact, he said there wasn't a skerrick of evidence to suggest that Maxina had anything to do with their injuries. Once all of the evidence had been presented at the coronial inquest, everyone eagerly awaited the coroner's official ruling. A coroner has found the violent deaths of the Kahui twins happened while they were in the sole care of their father, Chris Kahui. The three-month-old twins, Chris and Crew, died of head injuries in 2006. Chris Kahui was found not guilty of killing the babies after a five-week criminal trial in the High Court at Auckland in 2008. The coroner's inquest into the deaths of the twins began in October 2010 and were completed in June last year. In a report published this morning, the coroner Gary Evans says the twins died from brain injuries, suffered while they were in the sole custody care and control of Chris Kahui at their South Auckland home. He says the twins were injured in the same manner, at the same time, and at the hands of the same person. The coroner dismissed claims the twins could have been injured by their mother, Maxina King, or by her brother, Stuart King. Well, our reporter Sam Mora joins me now. Sam, the coroner here basically is establishing the facts of what happened. That's right, Simon. The, the coroner finds that both Chris and Crew died in hospital on June the 18th, 2006. Now, this was as a result of injuries that happened when they were in the care of their father, Chris Kahui. Now, the 77-page report says Chris Kahui was resentful of the fact he'd been left by his partner, Maxina King, to care for the twins. In fact, it says he was angered by her absence for the second night in a row, uh, the evening the injuries were inflicted on the babies, that is June the 12th. Now, the coroner says the twins were in every respect normal and well at 1pm on June the 12th, but that there was no evidence that their father fed them that afternoon or evening or the next morning. The report says he hid the fact the twins were not crying or eating and were unwell, and the coroner says that keeping this from the twins' mother and the others in the house is incompatible with the uh, behaviour one would reasonably expect from a normal father who had nothing to hide concerning his children's condition. Now, the report says that the fact the twins were not feeding was vitally important inf information which he kept to himself. And it says after the time one of the twins' crew stopped breathing, Mr. Kahui resisted the views of other adults that an ambulance should be called or the twins should be taken to hospital. Fundamentally, the coroner says, had they been taken to hospital, their lives might have been saved. And of course, we know the babies weren't taken to hospital until the following day. So what is the evidence this finding is based on? Well, the coroner gives a detailed account of what happened in June 2006. He outlines a list of things Mr. Kahui has said both in court and during various interviews with the police and other authorities, but he says there is no evidence to support these statements. 
He points out that Chris Kahui made a fundamental change to his evidence at the inquest into his son's deaths, that is, that the twins did not cry or feed again after midday on June the 12th. And this contradicts the evidence given in his three earlier police statements that the twins had been fed by him again later that day. Now, the coroner says it's likely the false account given by Mr. Kahui was to protect himself by representing that the twins remained well whilst in his hands. And he says he found Chris Kahui's evidence seriously confirmed conflicting in nature, lacking in credibility and not to be relied upon. And Sam, what does the coroner say about the earlier criminal proceedings? Simon, the coroner's court is only concerned with questions of fact. Uh, questions relating to criminal responsibility have already been tried out and disposed of by the High Court. But the question of how the twins came to meet their death is quite different to whether Mr. Kahui bears any responsibility in terms of the criminal's law for their deaths. And of course, he has been found to bear no such responsibility. But the purpose of the coroner's report is to identify the causes and circumstances of the twins' death. And uh, again, that finding is that the twins died from brain injuries suffered while in the sole custody, care and control of Chris Kahui. And as you mentioned earlier, the coroner also dismisses the claims the twins could have been killed by their mother, Maxina King, or her brother, Stuart King. Um, the coroner says there is not a skerrick of evidence that Maxina King was at home at the time of the injuries, uh, the time the injuries happened, uh, let alone that she had a motive to kill her own children and did so. And likewise, the coroner says there is not a scintilla of evidence to support the allegation that Stuart King hurt the twins. And what response has there been to the coroner's findings from Chris Kahui? Well, Mr. Kahui and his legal representatives have declined to comment on the findings, but they have issued a statement in which Mr. Kahui again denies any involvement in the twins' deaths and uh, strongly rejects the coroner's findings. And what about the police? What have they got to say? The police have also declined to comment, but they too have issued a statement in which they say they thoroughly investigated the deaths of the Kahui twins and put all available evidence before the court for examination and judgment. Uh, the police say they're still considering the evidence heard during the coroner's inquests, and they will not be making any further comment until that analysis is completed. Thank you, Sam. That's our reporter, Sam Morrow, joining me in the studio. Now you're wondering... Given the result of the coronial inquest, did the police lay fresh charges against Chris Kahui? Well, here's your answer. The police in South Auckland say they will not be laying further charges over the deaths of the Kahui twins. The twins died in 2006 and a trial in 2008 cleared their father, Chris Kahui, of their murder. But the police have been reviewing the evidence since a coroner's report in July this year said the babies died while in the sole care of their father. The police have declined to be interviewed, but Chris Kahui's lawyer, Lorraine Smith, joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Simon. What does this decision mean for your client? It means the end of the, um, the, the criminal trial process. Um, Simon, I'm not at all surprised at the decision that was released yesterday. Um, Superintendent Timms um, said that following a review of the evidence at the coroner's inquest, no further charges will be laid. Um, I was in Israel during the inquest, but I understand that no substantially different evidence from that given at the criminal trial was advanced. And the coroner's hearing um, took, I understand, about three weeks, whereas the jury trial heard evidence over seven weeks it was presided over by a judge of the High Court, and um, the jury included a medical doctor who was familiar with issues of bleeding on, bleeding on the brain. I mean, we had a smart jury. 
And that, but Lorraine Smith, nevertheless, the public has heard what the coroner's got to say. Surely there's a, a, a cloud hanging over your client's head because of the coroner's view. Uh, not at all. In my view, there is absolutely no comparison between a coroner's inquiry and a high court jury trial. Uh, and as I said, I'm not at all surprised by this decision. But the uh, the jury, as you mentioned, the jury, the jury decides on evidence put before it. Uh, the coroner, coroner can take a, a broader view, can't he? He's uh, not meeting the standard of a criminal standard of proof. Uh, well, he heard exactly the same evidence. He relitigated um, the, the 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 trial. And while we're on that topic, I have no doubt that our judges are going to be very concerned about relitigation of cases by the coroner. Um, relitigation undermines the integrity of jury verdicts. Well, he's and, doing his job, isn't he? Pardon? He's just doing his job. I think he went down the wrong track, frankly, and if I'd been in New Zealand, I would have, I would have um, pointed this out to him. Um, what, what it means is that if the police aren't happy with a jury verdict, they can have another go on the in the coroner's court. Um, and, and, and that's just not right. And I think you'll find that that judges, especially in the High Court, are extremely concerned about this aspect. But nevertheless, Lorraine Smith, many in the public might have read the, the coroner's report and think your clients, to be blunt, still did it. And many of them will have followed the jury trial, which was seven weeks, not three, and come to the conclusion that the jury got it right. The police do say the case remains open, and if there is new information that comes to hand, they'll look at it. I mean, would it be in your client's interest to try and find new information? Well, how can he? I mean, he did his best um, to, you know, to, to tell the police everything that he uh, knew, both when he was interviewed over a period of many, many hours um, before the trial and when he gave evidence uh, at the, the, the inquest. Um, th this is going to remain a cold case. It's never going to go away until the person who killed the twins is found. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 